been to focus on some of the questions that we as ministers have been, uh, have been asked most frequently over the years and, and to try to uh, address those in a, uh, a studious fashion. Tonight we're going to pose this question, or we're going to address this question. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? Now we've mentioned this uh, the past couple of weeks and made you aware that this is what we were going to study so that uh, you would be informed before this time uh, as to the subject matter in, in case it was something you uh, had concerns about with your children and young ears. Um, and we're going to do our best to be sensitive to that tonight as we go through this study. Now many in our culture today believe the Bible to be archaic at best and, and homophobic at worst because of its stance on homosexuality, but that does not diminish the Christian's recognition of the Bible as our source of absolute truth. And so tonight that's going to be the direction we take. We're looking at what the Bible has to say on this subject to the best of our ability. Now before we dive into this study, we do want to go to God in prayer, and so I'm going to ask that you join us for a word of prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, as always, we are honored to be able to approach your throne, thankful that you've given us an avenue through which to communicate with you. As we set aside this time tonight for study, we ask for your blessings on Mingu, myself, and Ben as we engage in this examination of, of your divinely inspired word on a topic that is very sensitive in our culture today. Help us to handle your word correctly, and, and Lord, help us to uh, discuss and study this well. And may we benefit from this investigation tonight. Lord, we are mindful of the uniqueness of this time we have to gather together. Thankful that we have this extra time of study. And it is our prayer that those who are here in person or online will glean from this study. Lord, may we honor you. May we uh, be pleasing to you as we engage in this tonight. And Lord, most of all, may we learn, may we grow, and may we live lives pleasing to you. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name that we pray. Amen. So what we want to do is we want to start off by simply looking at the biblical passages that address the subject of homosexuality. There are four or five prominent texts that deal with this subject, and we're going to break those down somewhat individually here as we get started. We're first going to look at the book of Leviticus. So if you want to turn there, there are two verses in Leviticus that address the subject of homosexuality. It's Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, as well as Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 13. And Mingu is going to get us started by looking at these two passages in the book of Leviticus. Okay, um, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So it's about uh, homosexuality. And also, um, chapter 20, verse 13 says, uh, If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Uh, the thing that God is forbidding by commandment is pretty much the same, the homosexuality. But uh, chapter 20, verse 13, adds the punishment, the capital punishment to the 
thing. But here is very interesting thing. Uh, one is, um, uh, I mean, chapter 20, verse 13 is also uh, a word abomination. And um, uh, verse 18, I mean, chapter 18, verse 23 uh, also has, uh, uh, 22 also has an abomination. Abomination is, uh, is det detestable things and um, the, the uh, original meaning of the word is abhor, detest. Uh, so this is what God detests, abhors. So uh, why? Because uh, God doesn't want to see it in his land, in his kingdom. Uh, the detestable things are, uh, we'll, we'll I mean, I believe we will discuss it later, a bit later again. But the detestable things are uh, basically related to what uh, you know, Gentiles were doing. When the Gentiles were idolaters, when they were worshippers idols. And uh, as they worship idols, it also um, corrupts their minds and they uh, became, became unconscious of what they are doing and they do everything they want to do and this is, that is abominable thing to God. So basically, according to the context, God is forbidding it strictly, forbidding the homosexuality uh, very strictly. Uh, let's read uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verses uh, 3 and 4 first. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. This is uh, God is saying, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And also, uh, I would like to point you to... Uh, verses uh, 24 to 30 to understand why God uh, forbids homosexuality and other, uh, among other sins. Uh, 24 says, uh, chapter 18, verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of those, uh, these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation uh, that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So what 
uh, this context is saying is that, you know, the thing like homosexuality is just a pa pagan thing, is a Gentile thing, is not godly thing, and that corrupts the land, that corrupts the kingdom of God. So it has to be cut off from the kingdom of God. So you should not do that. So homosexuality, among other sins, is uh, very, very strictly uh, uh, charged not to do, not to practice in the land of, uh, uh, in the land God uh, gives the Israelites. And real quick, I think it's important to notice throughout Leviticus chapter 18, homosexuality is not the only thing forbidden, not the only thing condemned. In fact, the, the bulk of Leviticus 18 is focused on condemning any, any type of sexual immorality, any type of sexual relationship that is not in, in keeping with God's original intent. And so you'll see in verse 6 that incest is uh, prohibited. And then in verse 20, adultery is prohibited. And in verse 23, bestiality. So homosexuality is not the only thing mentioned here, but it's important for us to notice that it is identified among all, among the other forms of, of sexual immorality that are identified in Leviticus chapter 18. All right, we now want to move our attention to Romans chapter 1. If you'll turn there in Romans chapter 1. Our focus will be on verses 26 and 27, but, but I want to call attention to verse 18 because that sets up this section we're looking at. So in verse 18, Paul uh, writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you continue reading, he'll talk about how they exchange, how, how uh, in their their pursuit of unrighteousness and ungodliness, they exchange in verse 25 the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So the, the context of Romans chapter 1 is setting us up for understanding that the sins he's going to identify throughout the last few verses of this chapter are deliberate decisions of those who are ungodly to worship themselves rather than God, to elevate themselves rather than God. In verse 26, he says this, For this reason God gave them up for the reason that they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and serve themselves instead of him. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What I want you to really notice in this passage is how Paul identified homosexuality as unnatural, as contrary to nature. Uh, the, the, the phrase unnatural is a, a Greek word that comes from a, that's a compound word, a preposition against, and of course the Greek term for nature. It's against nature is the idea. Uh, I don't know how many of you may remember this or were here for this, but in 2016, the BYG had a summer series, and they invited David Shannon in, and he did a lesson on this very topic, and he addressed at length Romans chapter 1, this very passage, and, and, and in a talking about what it means for homosexuality to be contrary to nature, he made two observations. He indicated that, that um, homosexuality is, is contrary to nature, is unnatural in regards to reproduction. 
it's against life. It, it does not produce life. And if you go back to God's original design, that was a component of the sexual relationship that God created. And so homosexuality is unnatural because it is against life. He also stated that homosexuality is unnatural because it's against anatomy. The human body is, is made for men and women to, to function cooperatively. And, and anatomically, the, a man and man's body is not made for each other, neither a woman and a woman's. And so, therefore, the, the fact that it is unnatural, both from a reproductive standpoint and an anatomical standpoint, is how David Shannon utilized this passage and, and referred to this contrary uh, to nature aspect. But here's what a lot of people try to do today, a lot of people who support homosexuality, a lot of people who, who believe that, they need, that homosexuality is okay. They look at Romans chapter 1 and it says that women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. What, what a lot of people will try to do today is they'll look at the natural aspect of this passage and say, well, what this is referring to is that a heterosexual person is engaging in a homosexual relationship, and that's unnatural for them. Or a homosexual person is engaging in a heterosexual relationship, and that's unnatural for them. It's an appeal to the sexual orientation of the individual as the basis for what's natural. But here's the thing. Paul's not arguing from that standpoint. Paul's arguing from what is natural based on what Genesis 1 records. And you can see that and understand that if you look at the language. He doesn't refer to, he refers to male and female, not men and women. The Greek language actually uses the words male and female here, just like is used in Genesis 1 as to how God created the genders. And the point there is, Paul is using the language, the less natural language of Genesis 1 than the more contemporary language of his day to use men and women. He's using that language from Genesis 1 to make the appeal show that he's referring back to the natural creation that God started. And so when you look at Romans chapter 1 here and you look at uh, Paul's indictment, if you will, of homosexuality in verses 26 and 27, which is obviously linked back to chapter to verse 18 as activities of those who are ungodly and unrighteous, you see that he's condemning homosexuality quite clearly here. And he doesn't just content, condemn the activity of homosexuality, he actually condemns same-sex lust, if you will, because he refers to uh, men being consumed with passion for one another. The whole point that I'm trying to make here is, is that Paul is condemning homosexuality in general, not some specific detail of it or some specific category of it, but in the context of Romans 1, he's outright condemning all forms of homosexuality in this very passage. And so uh, we need to recognize that Romans 1 is a passage much like Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 that condemns homosexuality. Kyle, when we think about uh, our study tonight, the main overall question, am I on? I'm on my end. Okay, there we go. No, that's too loud. There we go. Um, when we think about our study tonight about the, the main overall question of what does the Bible have to say about homosexuality, that's why we've started this way by looking at exactly what 
the Bible has to say about it. It's, it's important for us to look at what God's Word has to say about it to understand what His will is for us, especially in this matter. And so in Leviticus, as Mingu talked about, we saw that it was an abomination. In verse, chapter 18, verse 22, in chapter 20, verse 13, we saw that it is deserving of death under Mosaic law. And so that's where most people look at the Bible and say, oh, well, they just are hateful towards homosexuals. They hate uh, those who practice homosexuality. And so they look towards the Old Testament, even though Jesus never talked about it. They look towards the Old Testament and hold on to that Old Testament passage for dear life. But as we've already seen in Romans, in the New Testament, there's just as much a condemnation of it as we find in the Old Testament. Look at the words in this passage for condemning homosexuality. Vile passions. Dishonorable passions, as the ESV said. They've done what is against nature. They have committed what is shameful. They have received themselves the penalty of their error. They have been given over to a debased mind. Verse 28. And so the, the passage really continues down to verse 32 as he lists a few other sins. Uh, sexual immorality overall, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, and he lists a few others. And then in verse 32, what does he say? What does he conclude this by saying? He says who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And so, the text continues. It doesn't just stop in verses 26 and 27. Uh, it goes into, this is probably the most lengthy description of how a Christian should feel and deal with homosexuality in all the Bible, Romans chapter 1. Because it's not just one verse, it's not just two verses, it's a whole section of God's Word that delves into this. And what we have to understand in verse 32 is the difference between practicing and the difference between what that means to what it means to commit. To what it means to be tempted by. When we think about the difference between someone who practices sin and someone who commits sin, is someone who commits sin is doing it, for instance, when it comes to anger or when it comes to using bad language or when it comes to having uh, thoughts you shouldn't have. We're, com we're coming to a point in time where I make a bad decision, but I'm not necessarily having myself given over to that decision. For instance, I'm not practicing that sin. I have simply just committed it. And so I am still walking in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1 and verse 7, if I, in a momentary lack of following God, have fallen short. His blood continues to cleanse me. But if I have exchanged that momentary weakness into a practice, into something that I have become a professional at, into a actively giving up and no longer trying. That is the difference when you've crossed from committing into practicing sin. And so we need to distinguish this idea of verse 32 saying that those who practice such things are deserving of death. 
Now, this isn't talking about capital punishment as it was in the Mosaic Law, but it is talking about spiritual death. Those who practice such things are deserving of spiritual death. Now, there are something we have to understand tonight. There are individuals who struggle with this sin, struggle with this temptation. And I think it, we would be naive to think that within a congregation like ourselves and the size that we have, that there are not those who struggle with this temptation. But they're, no, not, they're not practicing the acting out of this temptation. How should we deal with that? Should we say that, how dare you be tempted by that sin? Well, would we do that with any other sin? It's at the point that we practice it and at the point that we give up on that struggle that it has become sin. And so we have to understand that the Bible is not saying that it is wrong to be tempted. Guess who was tempted? Jesus Christ. It says He went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. If it is wrong to be tempted, then Jesus was not the Christ because Jesus Himself was tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, the Bible says. So if Jesus can be tempted and not practice that sin, we too can be tempted by sin and not practice it and be okay. So we're not saying that those who are tempted by this sin or those who struggle with this temptation are deserving of death, but definitely the Bible tells us that those who practice such things are deserving of spiritual death. Thank you, Ben. We want to move on to another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you will. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 is the primary focus. And this is another passage in which there is some reference made to homosexuality. Ben will uh, get us started here. All right, so we, we understand what the things, some of the things that were going on in the church at Corinth. In chapter 5, we see that a man is, is having relations with his mother. This could be his mother-in-law. It could be his mother himself. And he is, they are told that they are to withdraw for, from him. They are not to be so tolerant that they put up with such sin. And so they're told to withdraw from him, to not keep company with anyone named a brother, verse 11, who is sexually immoral, and the list goes on. And so that gives us the context of chapter 6. There's even more things going on in the church at Corinth than just this one instance. Let's go ahead and read verses 9 and 10. Did you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. So obviously we see, first of all, we have to understand that both times, at the beginning of this passage and at the end of this passage, what does the Bible say? Those who practice such things, those who do such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says that in verse 9 at the very beginning of it, and it it lists all of these sins, and it says at the very end of it, for, to make it emphatic, that those who do such things will, inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
That's what the Bible says. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? That is what the Bible says. So this goes in line with what we read in Romans, that they are deserving of spiritual death. They are deserving to not get a piece of heaven, to be with God forever. This is blatantly clear that it will keep those who practice it from inheriting the kingdom of God. It says it twice. You can't miss it. There's no getting around the fact that those who practice homosexuality are forfeiting their chance at a home in heaven. But is that where the text ends? For a lot of people and for a lot of groups and for a lot of time in the church, it is where the text ends. We want to condemn, we want to point finger, we want to absolutely throw them in hellfire ourselves. But that's not where the passage ends. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Who's he talking about? The church in Corinth. The active Christians that are worshiping in Corinth. Such were some of you. But. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, and but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you. Of what such is he talking about? Homosexuals. Sodomites. Such were some of you, and just like we see within the, the epistles of Paul and all throughout the New Testament, one of the greatest words that we can find is this word, but. But some of you, even though you were this way, you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. What he's saying is, such were some of you in your former days. In your old lifestyle, before you knew about Christ, when you were a Gentile practicing that which was vile, which was unnatural, all the things we talked about in Romans, such were some of you, but you became a Christian. You put off that sin, and you have been justified, you have been washed, you have been sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now this is where he says, of course, you're not as justified, you're not as sanctified, and you're not as washed as those who don't struggle with homosexuality. That's verse 12, right? No. That's where the message ends. He says, such were some of you, but no longer. Why? Because you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. So when we think about Leviticus, when we think about Romans, we always have to think about 1 Corinthians. Because Jesus' blood, the blood of our Christ, is able to wash, is able to justify, and is able to sanctify anyone, regardless of whether we understand how or not. Regardless of what it is, regardless of how far it has gone, Jesus' blood is able to, to atone for that sin. And we know that such were some of them. Christians that had formerly been homosexuals. 
but the blood of Jesus brought them to a right relationship with God. They no longer practice such sin, they practice righteousness. And their blood, their sins had been atoned for by the blood of Christ. The same way you and I have been atoned by the blood of Christ. So we have to understand that and keep that as the focal point of this discussion. What does the Bible have to say about homosexuality? Leviticus, it's an abomination. Leviticus, it is deserving of capital punishment under Mosaic law. Romans, it is unnatural, it is vile, it is detestable, it is all the things that he said, and yes, you are deserving if you practice such things of spiritual death. But 1 Corinthians, Christ still wants you. The church still wants you. And Christ's blood is able to atone for your sin the same way it's able to atone for all of ours. There is one other passage we want to draw your attention to, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The focus will be on verse 10, but we need to read some context here as well. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, start with me in verse 8. There Paul writes this. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, it's interesting here, Paul does what he's done in 1 Corinthians 6, in Romans chapter 1. He provides what is sometimes referred to as a vice list, a list of, of sins. And in this list, it's very interesting because they, they kind of coincide with the Ten Commandments to some degree. And if you look at verse 10, what the phrase that's pertinent to our discussion tonight, in the English Standard Version says, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. So the sexual, sexually immoral is the broad category that would include all those, those uh, sexual sins mentioned back in Leviticus 18, whether it be uh, sex before marriage or adultery or, or bestiality or incest or homosexuality. But here he gives that big general term and then gives the more specific term homosexuality. And some believe he does that because in Ephesus, homosexuality became a major issue, a major sin issue. Now, the New American Standard Version uses the terms sexually immoral and homosexuals. The New King James uses the term fornicators and sodomites. The New International Version uses the phrase sexually immoral and those practicing homosexuality. But you get the idea. There's the general term for sexual immorality, and there's the more specific term for homosexuality. And ultimately, the big takeaway for us from this passage is that Paul classified homosexuality specifically, but sexual immorality generally. He classified them as an activity of the lawless and disobedient, of the ungodly and sinners, of the unholy and profane. And so when you look at 1 Timothy 10, you have a condemnation 
of homosexuality because it's, it's linked with sin. It's linked with lawlessness. It's linked with ungodliness, just like it was in Romans 1, just like it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and just like it was in Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. See, the one thing you need to take away from what the Bible has to say about homosexuality is that it's consistent. It's consistent in condemning homosexuality from the Old Testament through the New Testament. There is not one passage in which homosexuality will be addressed and will be spoken of as, a, as an appropriate thing, as an acceptable thing, as an honorable thing. It is condemned consistently throughout the whole of Scripture. And so when we look at these passages that address homosexuality in Leviticus, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Timothy, they all do the same thing. They all paint it in a negative light. And with that, we now want to consider why. Why the Bible condemns homosexuality. Mingu, would you like to get us started in this section? Okay, um... Actually, I wanted to add one verse uh, to the, you know, four or five verses that we looked at. Uh, it is Jude 7. Jude 7, uh, if you will, let's read it together. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Um, here, you know, the they, this is English Standard Version. Uh, here, the word, I'm afraid, the pursuit of natural desire is an idiom about idiom that means homosexuality. The original uh, words say, uh, I mean, Greek language is saying, is saying that you know they pursued different flesh, different flesh, as a homosexuality uh, kind of you know idiomatic expression of it. Um, so we can see that uh, you know uh, the Bible is specifically saying that the homosexuality deserves the eternal fire, the punishment of eternal fire. So why is that so? Uh, a severe punishment uh, as for the sexual immorality. Um, first, I think because it is going against the order God established by his creation, by the creation. Um, uh, Brother Kyle pointed out from Romans uh, text that it is contrary to nature. It means the same thing. It is contrary to nature. Uh, nature means the order uh, God established in his creation. So contrary to nation, uh, nature means it is going against the, the order God established. So it is also going against God's authority. It is going against God himself and God's will. So that's why it deserves so uh, strict punishment. And also uh, here, different, in Jude 7, uh, different flesh means different, means uh, something going against the order God established. 
uh, in the creation. So again, the same thing, you know, the different means that it is not natural, unnatural. So uh, my English standard version says unnatural desire, but unnatural flesh could, uh, was the kind of original Greek uh, words. So that's why uh, the homosexuality uh, deserves, uh, deserves uh, such uh, uh, you know, strict and uh, huge punishment because it is going against God's law and God's order. Uh, not only that, uh, as we talked about uh, already, it is an abomination. It's an abomination. The abomination, uh, as I talk, uh, uh, talked uh, a little bit, is what God abhors, detests, and loathes. So it, God hates it. Abomination is what God hates. So uh, if, if someone does what God hates, guess, you know, guess what will happen. So the abomination, why is it abomination to God? Uh, because God wants his people to be different. God wants his people to be as holy as he is. So if uh, one of his people does something abominable, then God will not bear with it. Right? So uh, abomination is the reason why God punishes it so severely. Um, then why abomination is so uh, bad thing to God? Because abomination is basically originates from idol worships, idol worships of the surrounding nations. Because uh, they, they are going against God, they worship the images and they worship creatures and you know, reptiles even the sun, moon, and trees, and things like that. And they, because they go against God and do uh, worship such things, they also do whatever they like, whatever they desire in their flesh. So they, you know, they are already ready to do such a thing like homosexuality. So abomination is uh, basically coming originating from idol worships. So because they are, uh, all things are going against God uh, in their idol worship, so they can do such a bad thing, I mean, terrible thing. I think Romans chapter 1 points, it out, point, points out it. So let, let us, let's look at Romans chapter 1. Uh, just uh, Romans chapter 1. Points, points it out from uh, verse 22. Uh, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, therefore, because they exchanged the, the glory of the immortal God for images, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to immorality, I, I'm sorry, impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, for this reason, because they became the idol worshipers, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And he is talking about the homosexuality. So the, the base and the origin of homosexuality is idolatry. That's why God detests it. That's why God punishes, punishes it with, even with the capital punishment in the Old Testament and the you know, spiritual death in the New Testament. Right, and I think, I think what we need to talk about is why that is. Why is it an abomination? Why is it condemned in the Bible? Why is this not okay? Well, we have to go back to creation. We have to go back to Genesis chapter 1. If you'll go there and turn real quickly to that. And we, as you're turning there, let's just understand that this has been condemned throughout the entirety of creation. In the patriarchal age, we find in Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, in the time of Abraham, God condemned them for doing this. Fast forward to Leviticus, we've already gone over that. In the Mosaic age, he condemned them for doing this. Fast forward to the Christian age, up to us today, God condemned this practice. So from the patriarchal to the Mosaic to the Christian to us today, it has always been condemned. And this is why. It goes against what he intended from the beginning. And that's found in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God, it says that he created them male and female. He created them to go and to coincide with one another. It was his original intent that Eve could come and complete Adam, that she could literally be a part of him and that they could literally become one flesh. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. This, by, this verse is used multiple times all throughout the Bible. But it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So we see from the beginning, from creation, that God intended it to be male and female coming together to become one flesh. And the reason it is an abomination, the reason that it is against nature, is because that's not how God intended it from the beginning. God intended it to be male and to be female from the very beginning. And we see this is not just an Old Testament idea. Jesus Christ himself mentions this passage in Matthew chapter 19. He brings up the fact that God created them male and female. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5, if you're looking for words in red, many people say Jesus never addressed this. They are wrong. 
he talks about it in Matthew 19 and verse 5. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 4, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Jesus Christ, who is also creator, tells us that he made them male and female. Guess what else is an abomination? Anything that goes against God's original intent for what he had for his children. And so homosexuality is obviously a distortion of what he had planned from the very beginning. That is why the Bible condemns homosexuality. That is also why it condemns lying. That is also why it condemns anger. That is also why it condemns all the other sins. Because it is a distortion of what God desired for his children from the very beginning. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Mingu. We're going to go ahead and transition to our final section of this study. And what we really wanted to conclude with is how do we reach out to homosexuals? How do we minister to those who are battling homosexuality? Because as Christians, that should be our objective. I think for far too long, we, we've kept our distance and we've tried to uh, avoid people who struggle with this and haven't shared the gospel with them the way that we should. And for me, as I've reflected on this particular subject, on this particular uh, aspect of our study, I think it has to begin with our own attitude towards those who battle homosexuality. I think we need to recognize two important truths. The first is that homosexuality does not make one unlovable by God. God loves you regardless of what temptation you struggle with. In fact, God specifically said in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, that nothing will separate us from his love. And in that very same book, we're told that God showed his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's chapter 5 and verse 8. You see, it doesn't matter what we are most tempted with or, or what, what, uh, what sin overtakes us. God loves us, no matter what. Now, salvation is contingent on some things, but God's love is not. He expects us to repent and to stop sinning no matter what the sin is. But he loves us unconditionally. And so we as Christians need to adopt the mentality that God loves the person who struggles with homosexuality just like he loves me for whatever sins it is I struggle with. That sin does not make one unlovable by God. But this might be the more difficult thing that we need to accept mentally that homosexuality does not make one more sinful than another. In James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, James eliminated the potential for quantifying sin. He said, James 2, 10 and 11, he said, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but, do you, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, or what James is saying, is that all sins are equal because all sins result in imperfection. 
So I'm imperfect and you're imperfect, and that means we're equally imperfect regardless of what caused our imperfection. I think Paul clarifies this even better in the passage that Ben addressed earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because there he lists all these different sins. He lists homosexuality alongside stealing and greed and drunkenness and adultery and idolatry and slander. Identifies all of those as sins that will keep you out of heaven. And I think the point to take away from that is that homosexuality is no different than any other sin because every sin produces the same consequence. Separation from God. And as Ben emphasized greatly there in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul went so far as to indicate that some of the Christians in Corinth used to be homosexuals. And that indicates that the sin of homosexuality will not prevent you from becoming a Christian as long as you truly repent of it. It's not the unforgivable sin. But yet sometimes we as Christians treat it as though it is. So the homosexual sinner is, is not more sinful than the heterosexual sinner. Everyone is equal when it comes to sin, and everyone is equal when it comes to the availability of salvation. And we need to change the way we view the person who struggles with homosexuality. View them as someone who's not more sinful than you, but someone who is equally sinful like you. And has the opportunity to receive salvation just like you. Now, is that all we need to do uh, when it comes to reaching out to homosexuals? Absolutely not. But I do think a mindset has to change for some of us when it comes to ministering to those who struggle with homosexuality. And I think that's one of the first things we have to talk about. Let me turn it over to these guys to chime in on things they're, that they're considering as well. I think, uh, I think what we have to remember as we approach uh, the homosexual people, uh, gay people uh, who are struggling those temptations um, is that what is impossible to man is possible to God. Amen. You know, um, I know, uh, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, I heard from many arguments uh, that it is not easy to change their lifestyle, the homosexual people, gay people. But it, it is not about difficulty. It is not a, about possibility, but it is about faith. It is about the, uh, you know, utilizing the blood of Jesus. Uh, that's what we have to remember as Christians as we approach uh, that specific uh, sinners. And we, what we have to do is not to tell them the plausible explanations, you know, sociological, psychological, or biological explanations, or uh, those arguments against them. But we, what we have to do to them is to tell them the possible, I mean, possibility that they can get out of it if they believe that the blood of Jesus can wash them, whatever it may be, what, what, whatever sin it may be, uh, the blood of Jesus can wash them. If they believe it, if they really commit themselves to 
uh, to Jesus in repentance, and God will help them. God will deliver them. That's what we have to tell them. And um, one thing I would like to add here is that you know we we really need to believe in God. We need really truly trust in God's power, God's ability to save us. You know, I was a terrible sinner. I was converted when I was uh, 39 years old. I, I, I was not a homosexual uh, person, but, you know, there are so many other sins, like, you know, Carl said, all sins are the same. You know, the sins are sins. So I was a sinner, but I, I couldn't imagine how, how I could get out of those sinful life. But as I heard the gospel, I just trusted God and, you know, I entrusted my life to him and I was baptized. And that's it. And God is still helping me get out of those sins. Honestly speaking, I still have some, I am still struggling with some of the sins, you know. But I believe God is with me and the Holy Spirit is teaching me and leading me, and Jesus is, is, is with me and holding my hands and giving me the strength, so I can, I can you know, overcome it. I can't keep myself not going, uh, from going back to the former life. So I am here before you as a minister. If I am ashamed of uh, standing before you, I will not be here. But because I, even, even if I am struggling with those sins, uh, some of the sins uh, even now, but because I know that God is more powerful than any other things, I know I will, I will you know, overcome eventually. Not necessarily in this life, but in heaven, before I go to heaven. I will, I will overcome. So that's what I believe uh, we have to, we Christians have to tell them that you can do it if you believe, if you trust in God, if you really, truly, you know, grab God's hand, I mean, committing that it is your sin, repenting from the sin, then God will take care of, take care of the rest. So that's what we have to tell them, I believe. To, to put in a, a, a to put a verse on what you're saying, Mingu, I'd like to I'd like you to turn your attention to Titus chapter two, and look at verses uh, eleven through um, fourteen with me, because we need to remember that God's on our side. He's our ally who wants to help us overcome the things we struggle with, no matter what they are. And Titus chapter two verse eleven says this: For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That passage tells us that God will train us. I don't know what that entails in its entirety or how that's going to look and play out in your individual life, but it's telling us that God's on our side and he wants to help us. It's the same idea 
oh, sorry, that was me. It's the same idea that sits behind 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where we're told that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to endure, but will give us a way of escape. He is on our side to help us navigate even the, the most difficult and challenging temptations there are. And so to, to kind of put a biblical verse to what I think Mingu was communicating there, we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. God's on our side to help us. And that's a message we need to convey as we minister to those who struggle with the temptation toward homosexuality. Kyle, I think we have to acknowledge that this question gives an assumption. How do we reach out to homosexuals? For some in this audience and some in the church, they don't want to say that we have to. Why would we reach out to homosexuals? They're committing abomination. They're committing perversion. They're committing all these things. So why would we reach out to homosexuals? Well, if you're thinking that tonight, you are wrong. If that type of idea is in our hearts, then we are wrong. Why? Because we saw in 1 Corinthians, God wants people that battle with this struggle. God wants people who have struggled with this and are willing to repent of it and to become a faithful follower. God wants them in the church. First of all. So how do we reach out to homosexuals? Well, we better be. We better be reaching out to them just as much as we reach out to anyone else. And if we're not, we're wrong. So secondly, when it comes to me personally, this question used to be a lot easier than it is now. And I'll tell you why. It's one thing to your whole life know what the Bible says. Know what the Scriptures say in Leviticus and Romans and 1 Corinthians and all the passages we've looked at tonight in 1 Timothy and Jude and Sodom and Gomorrah and to know what God believes and God his original intent. It's one thing to know that's what the Scriptures say about how this is a blatant sin, abominable, abominable, perverse, unnatural, a distortion of what God intended. It's one thing to know and to read and to understand all those things your whole life. It's a little bit more difficult when someone you know or someone you love comes to you and tells you that this is a struggle. It's a little bit different when someone you know and you love comes and tells you that they're giving up Christianity for this sin. And I'd never gotten that text or phone call until a few months ago where Jency and I's best friend She'd known her for years. I've known her since college. Go to church together, go to retreats together, go to all the different things together, and then never having once mentioned that this was a struggle for her. And she never mentioned it because she didn't think we would understand. She didn't think that we would be gentle with her. She didn't think we would be non-judgmental with her. She assumed that we wouldn't. She assumed the church wouldn't help her. It wouldn't be a place for her to be loved 
and to be accepted anymore. And so now, she is no longer a member of the church. And that's when it challenges what you think and how you approach this question. Because... We cannot bend what we believe scriptures say because they say it. We cannot bend what God's original intent was because God's original intent still applies. But when it comes to how I individually reach out to homosexuals, my answer is completely different than what it might have used to be because it's happened to me and it's happened to my friend. Some conclusions I've made in the last few months is no different than what has already been said, but it's one thing to say them and one thing to mean them. The first conclusion I've made is that we cannot make this sin of homosexuality, regardless of how strange and how different it is and how obscure it is to most of our lives, we cannot make the sin of homosexuality of any higher or any more egregious stigma than that of any other sexually immoral sin. Why? Because the same way that homosexuality is against nature, is it against God's intent to practice such things, it is also against God's nature, and it is also against God's intent to reach outside the boundaries of a marital relationship and cheat on your spouse. It is also against God's intent and God's nature that He established from creation to have premarital relations with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Anything that goes against God's intent is to be denounced. It is intrinsically sin, and we should denounce all of those with the same veracity that we denounce homosexuality. Why? Because when we don't, it shows the individuals battling with this sin how hypocritical we are. If we do not condemn premarital sex, if we do not condemn extramarital sex, then we are hypocrites because they are on the same level before God Almighty. And when we don't do that, those who are battling this temptation are going to see our hypocrisy and they are going to be driven away from the Lord and driven away from His church. The second conclusion I've come to is we cannot treat the people dealing with this sin not worthy of becoming potential vital members of the body of God, the body of Christ. Why? Because we've already talked about in Corinth that teaches that those willing to repent from this lifestyle and align themselves to the Word of God are accepted because they are washed, they are justified, they are sanctified to the exact same extent that any of us have been. When we don't do this, we show them that there is no place for them here. And just like with my friend, they will be driven away from the Lord and it may never become of her coming back. I'm afraid we've driven so many from the Lord 
that could have been redeemed because we did not think we should reach out to homosexuals. We have to understand that Jesus came for everyone, not just for the people who have sin that looks like ours. And lastly, I understand that we cannot foster an atmosphere that tells them that we don't love them, that we will help them, that we will try to understand them and listen to them and help them in every way that we can. Because what if it were you? How would you need to be reached out to? Just like with any other sin, it requires help. They are not alone. They have the church, or at least they should have the church for help. We've got to tell them that they have Jesus to help. And we've got to tell them that we want them. And we want to help them in every way we can. Those are some of the conclusions I've had in the last few months. But again, if this hasn't happened to you, it's a whole lot different. I pray that we can be a whole lot more graceful with the way that we look at this and the way that we look at sin in general. Because without Jesus, none of us are going. We've talked about you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Raise your hand if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God without Jesus. I didn't think so. So tonight, I hope we go out and we stop being hateful on social media. I hope that we stop being hateful to those people who are struggling with this sin. Because I struggle with sins, and I'm glad nobody treats me that way. That's just the beginning of what i got to say, but we're out of time. I told you, even though we had three... Let's look at your average of sermons lately, buddy. Well, that's, that is Amen? True. That is true. But thank you, Ben, for, for sharing your personal experience. That is truly beneficial. I know we've gone over, and we're thankful for your patience with us tonight and for being a part of this study. We will actually conclude the Got Questions series next Sunday night. It will be our last, uh, last Sunday evening of the one-hour format, at least of the one-hour sermon, I mean, one-hour study format. Again, beginning March, or no, March. Wow, it's that kind of year, isn't it? <laughs> beginning November 18th, we will uh, re conduct a new format, 15 minutes of, uh, of a devotional time on the front end, followed by a 45-minute uh, study in this Ministers of the Roundtable format. Let us uh, close tonight with a word of prayer. Again, Heavenly Father, we approach you. Thankful we can study your word. It is our prayer as we conclude this study tonight that we will be bold in our, our, our proclamation of your word, that we will unhesitatingly denounce all sin and hold up the truth of your gospel. Lord, it is also our prayer that we will become better agents of yours in this world and that we will treat all people with the love that you show even as we hold on to the truth. Help us, Lord, to be... To be um, ambassadors 
to those who struggle with sin, no matter what that sin takes the form of. And Lord, help us to be people who can reach the lost, no matter what. We love you, Lord. We thank you for sending your son to die for us, because we know it is only through the death of Jesus that any of our sins are atoned for. May we never take that for granted. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.